The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, most of us think of Jimmy Carter as a failure as president, the Democrat who opened the door to Reagan, and the only president whose work after leaving office was better than his work in office. Kai Bird says that's wrong. Carter had more accomplishments and was more complicated than people realized. Kai's new book is called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. But first, it's not just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who won't vote to reform the filibuster. Dianne Feinstein says she won't either. And there are more Democrats in the Senate saying the same thing. But without filibuster reform, of course, the rest of the Democrats' agenda is dead starting with protection of voting rights and elections. What's wrong with these people? For comment and analysis, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and producer of The Sit-In, the terrific documentary on Peacock TV about that week in 1968 when Harry Balafonte hosted The Tonight Show. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be with you. Joe Manchin comes from a state where Trump beat Biden by 37 points, so he thinks he has to be, quote, bipartisan. Remind us about Dianne Feinstein and the state she comes from. Ah, yes. It's about as different from West Virginia as you can get. Arguably the most liberal state in the union. Uh, And it's just been troublesome for a while that she's such a centrist. So what reason does she give for opposing filibuster reform? Well, she says that she thinks it's it's just uh, not in keeping with the traditions of the Senate. Uh, But she also, she seems to leave the door open if she saw a threat to democracy. 
Uh, and somehow she just doesn't see one. She doesn't see one in the anti the voter suppression legislation that's being passed across the country in red states. She doesn't see one in the insurrection of January 6th or in the Republican refusal uh, to do anything about that, investigate that insurrection and the, the Republican defense of it, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, she's she's clinging to an old vision of the bipartisan traditions in the Senate. Uh, when she gave Lindsey Graham a pat on the back uh, after the uh, Amy Coney Barrett hearings, it, that was that was, you know, it, it sealed it. She, she's uh, she's really a creature of 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, you quote her as telling Forbes uh, last week. If democracy were in jeopardy, I would want to protect it. But I don't see it being in jeopardy right now, close quote. I read that to my wife and she shouted, what is the matter with her? It's maddening to have to put up with someone in a safe seat in a very, very liberal state being about as bad as Joe Manchin on these issues. So there is this proposal that you've referred to that there should be, the Senate could compromise on this and make an exception that the filibuster would not be allowed on voting rights bills. Some senators who are sort of moderates, like John Tester from Montana and Chris Coons from Delaware, both are on record saying they would support something like that. You know, we already have exceptions where where certain things do not require 60 votes. Supreme Court appointments now. Yeah. Yeah, for example. Example. <laughs> Certain things that only have a budgetary impact uh, that, you know, that's defined very broadly can be handled with 50, 51 votes, counting in this case Kamala Harris, vice president. So there already are these carve outs. There already are exceptions. Filibuster has come down in number. Uh, it once required 67 senators to support uh, a bill that now you know came down to 60. Uh, some people, a proposal that I don't happen to like very much, but it is out there, is to bring the number uh, down from 60 to 55. But I think that just makes 55 the impossible number. I think yeah. that there are a lot of, a lot of people, not a lot, there's actually not a lot. Occasionally you get four or five or six or seven uh, Republican senators doing the right thing. As in, and a, by occasionally, I mean once a blue moon, uh, I think the last vote uh, was was the commission, uh, the, the January 6th commission. I think that got seven Republican votes. Yeah. They never get to 10. And if the filibuster uh, limit was 55, I would bet that they would get to 54 because, you know, Mitch McConnell is allowing some of these people to, quote, vote their conscience as long as they don't get close to 60. So yeah. they'll never get close to 60. If it was really 55, they wouldn't, they would get to 54. So I, I think I don't like that compromise at all, but at least, it, I mean, it is out there. There are some people talking about trying to chip away at this roadblock to the Biden uh, and to the progressive agenda. But there are other Democratic senators who are not supporting any kind of filibuster reform, even on voting rights legislation. Let's name some names. Maine Independent Angus King, uh, Maryland's Ben Cardin, and New Hampshire Democrat Maggie Hassan. Maggie Hassan is kind of a special case because uh, she won her election last time by just 3,000 votes, so she's running scared. There's other people who have very who who are running for re-election in tight states. Catherine uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Maggie Hassan, and these others. 
uh, could run, saying they're sort of like Republicans and so Republicans should vote for them. On the other hand, they could run proudly supporting the Democratic agenda, which has done so many things for their constituents. I think you can imagine what that kind of campaign would be like. Right. And, you know, they're going to be appealing to out-of-state donors and, and liberals and progressives for funding. I think Mark Kelly has left the door open. I, I think that some of these people could conceivably be brought along by strong leadership, but so far we're not seeing that. The big political question you pose in your piece at thenation.com is whether if Joe Manchin suddenly gave up his opposition to the filibuster, these other Democratic senators who've been sort of hiding in his shadow and let him take the heat, whether they would also uh, not want to be the point person for defeating the Democratic agenda. What do you think would happen if Joe Manchin switched? I, I think it would make some difference, but I, I have to believe that somebody else would come along. Uh, you know, I, I, there there are people who have been quieter about it, but uh, but don't support it. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit convenient to focus only on Manchin. Uh, on the other hand, I just got a report that uh, the Texas Democrats who so uh, bravely blocked their states, temporarily, I believe, blocked their states awful voter suppression law, uh, they came to Washington to make to make the case for the For the People Act. And Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema didn't even bother meeting with them. Terrible. Uh, And so, you know, these are these are elected officials. These are elected Democrats. And you can't at least listen to them. So I I think it it would make a difference. It, It would make a huge difference if he changed his position. But I don't know that it would mean that there were suddenly 50 votes either to abolish the filibuster or to create a voting rights carve out. On this show a few weeks ago, we talked to uh, Hawaiian Senator Maisie Hirono, and she said that once the Republicans in the Senate actually vote to block the big Democratic bills, starting with protection for voting rights, the Democrats who had opposed filibuster reform will see how bad this is going to be for them and their constituents and will change their minds. Do you think that's possible? I, I admire her. She certainly knows more than I do, but I don't. I'm not that optimistic. You know, they're seeing they're seeing bills they care about get blocked. You know, Manchin was crushed and just so disappointed uh, that the January 6th investigative commission got shot down by his Republican colleagues. If that couldn't pass, how could this? How 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 will anything pass? If she's right, then I wish you know Chuck Schumer would just start holding votes and holding votes and holding votes and, and you know, letting letting them see the ob- the truth that's so obvious to so many of us that, that they're not going to get 10 Republicans. On some of these things, they might not get any Republicans. We've already seen there was no possible compromise on the COVID relief, the American Rescue Plan that passed early in the Biden, in Biden's term, you know, even though Manchin got the unemployment benefit reduced, gotched uh, the minimum wage hike, did these things that he thought might bring along Republicans. No Republicans went along. So you know, there's so much evidence that 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 they don't want to do that. Um, I, I, I don't I don't see where she gets her optimism. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Joe Biden. I've heard that the president of the United States has impressive powers to persuade senators in his own party to back his initiatives. Uh, What have we seen from Joe Biden on this? And maybe he's doing things that we haven't seen. I hope so. (laughs) I certainly hope so. And I believe I believe so. You know, they work together well in the Senate. I 
believe that there is going to be some kabuki that goes on and that Biden is talking to him and he is talking to Biden, even if he's not talking to Texas Democrats right now. On the other hand, you know, we did see President Biden call, not quite call him out by name, but say a few weeks ago, hey, you guys think I can do everything. You haven't noticed that I've, we've got a couple of friends on our side of the aisle that like to vote with the other side. You know, people were kind of shocked at that because, you know, we knew who he was talking about for sure. His powers are not not as strong as as we would hope, but I hope that he's got a strategy. And it's probably something like what Maisie Hirono described. But, you know, he's also now starting to get you know, a little bit of pushback from the left, you know, with Senator Sanders, not specifically on the filibuster or voting rights, although I'm sure he feels similarly about those, but being uncomfortable about this cleaving of the infrastructure bill to do a bipartisan deal around kind of hard infrastructure, if you will, bridges, roads, et cetera, uh, and then a reconciliation package that will uh, fold in the other, the softer infrastructure pieces that we were all so excited about in Biden's first proposal. Uh, Sanders has been very quiet and diplomatic. He heads the budget committee. He's not. He doesn't need to be, you know, throwing rocks from the sidelines. Decided to speak up, so he's getting a little bit frustrated, uh, if not fed up, with Biden's strategy of kind of coddling. Uh, mansion and cinema. So we'll see where this goes. It's very unsettled right now, and it's a little depressing. Joan Walsh, you can read her piece, Diane Feinstein is an embarrassment at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about Jimmy Carter. Most of us think of him as a failure as president, the Democrat who opened the door to Reagan, and the only president whose work after leaving office was better than his work in office. Jimmy Carter is the subject of a wonderful new biography by Kai Bird called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Kai is the Pulitzer Prize-winning co-author of the definitive book on J. Robert Oppenheimer, and he also wrote acclaimed biographies of John J. McCloy and McGeorge and William Bundy. He's written about Vietnam, Hiroshima, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the CIA, and the Alger Hiss case. He's also a contributor to The Nation and a member of The Nation editorial board. We reached him today at home in Washington, D.C. Guy Bird, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure. Well, you open your book with the story of Mary Fitzpatrick. It's amazing, and I found it pretty eye-opening about Jimmy Carter. Tell us about Mary Fitzpatrick. Well, Mary Prince Fitzpatrick was a young black woman uh, in Georgia, uh, and she got into a bar fight defending her uh, girlfriend, and uh, a gun was pulled by someone else, and she wrestled with it, and the gun went off, and someone was killed. A young man was killed. Uh, she then was uh, on the the harsh end of Southern just, justice <laughs> and was given a public defender who, who uh, persuaded her to plead guilty, uh, assuring her that uh, she would get off with a uh, suspended sentence or something. And uh, she was 
convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. And uh, when go go Governor Carter and his wife, Rosie, Rosalind Carter, became governor, uh, you know, in those days, the governor's mansion was uh, stocked with what they called trustees. <laughs> this is like unbelievable, but they were essentially all prisoners who were furloughed just for the day to serve as cooks or gardeners uh, in, in the governor's mansion, and then would go back tonight at night to spend, to sleep in the prison. And, uh, you know, it was like serf labor, uh, re residue of slavery, I think. Yeah, <laughs> like, I incredible. think so too. <laughs> Anyway, Mary Prince uh, Fitzpatrick was convicted and uh, somehow Rosie met her when she visited the women's prison and they struck up a conversation. She asked her to be a trustee, to be a nanny for young Amy. And uh, they eventually became convinced that she was completely innocent um, of this crime of murder. And uh, she worked as a nanny for the whole four years of the governorship. And uh, then when Jimmy Carter unbelievably won the presidency in this miraculous campaign coming from nowhere, they brought her to the White House and she spent the next four years in, in the third floor of the White House working as Amy's nanny, a convicted murderer. She was literally just furloughed from the prison. <laughs> and to this day, she is working for the Carters in Plains, uh, I think working three or four days a week uh, as her, their housekeeper. And she is the one of the most devoted of their uh, small circle of friends and, and colleagues. And they, she takes care of them. One last question about Mary Fitzpatrick. Was Jimmy Carter right that she was not guilty? Well, I think so, uh, but you know, it's it, the record. The court records are uh, a mess, and uh, but Jimmy is convinced that she was innocent, um, and so, and he to this day says that she was just a victim of Southern justice. Well, return with us now to 1976. Watergate is over. Nixon is in disgrace. Jerry Ford is the president nobody voted for. In Georgia, Governor Jimmy Carter is running for the Democratic nomination, along with several other people. Now we see that 1976 was the year Reagan started running for president, but nobody I knew at the time thought Reagan was a threat to the Democrats. Uh, we thought the biggest problem for the Democrats was George Wallace. Reagan was sort of a joke, uh, a failed B-movie actor with politics like Goldwater. And history had proven that Goldwater would be a disaster for the Republican Party. So nobody was asking in 1976 which Democrat can beat Reagan. They were asking, can anybody beat George Wallace in the primaries and win white Southerners back to the Democratic Party because they all remembered that after LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he said that famous line, we've lost the South for a generation. And indeed, George Wallace won five deep South states in 1968. Nixon won all of them in 1972. 
And now it's 1976, and the key battleground turned out to be Florida, where Jimmy Carter, the liberal governor of Georgia, was facing George Wallace, the racist ex-governor of Alabama. And Jimmy Carter came in first, and George Wallace came in second, and that was a turning point for a lot of us. We had a Southern white man who supported black civil rights. Jimmy Carter went on to carry all of the South for the Democrats in 1976, a truly historic achievement. Uh, My question for you is, who was Jimmy Carter in 1976, and how did he manage to defeat George Wallace and win the South back to the Democrats? Well, that's an excellent question. That's really the heart of this whole story. You know, it's uh, here's a Southern white man who comes from the deepest part of South Georgia. Uh, His father was a believer in white supremacy. And yet Jimmy Carter is not. He's an outlier. He's somehow raised largely, I think, under the influence of Miss Lillian. Remember Miss Lillian, that wonderful character we saw in Johnny Carson with all her one-liners. She was uh, an eccentric Southern woman who defended Abraham Lincoln and believed in equality of the races. And, you know, she was a Southerner by culture and uh, she occasionally even used the N-word, but she believed in equality. And she allowed young Jimmy to play, uh, all his playmates were African-Americans when he was growing up in Archer just a couple of miles down the road from Plains, Georgia, which was, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so he, he is a Southern man. He is a product, but he is a Southern white liberal man. And he was, he was always, he always had friends who were Blacks. He was the first politician in Georgia who could, and he ran on, and when, when he ran for governor, he was the first politician who could actually go into a black church and campaign comfortably and openly and speak their language. And he, he was one of them. And, and he could also, though, go into a small town in South Georgia and speak to white rural Southern voters, men, and appeal to them. He was very clever. You know, Jimmy Carter has this, most people today think of him as a woolly-headed liberal humanitarian. He was ruthless politically. I mean, he had enormous ambition. He was very smart and intelligent, well-read, and he was very ambitious. And and, uh, so he knew exactly what he needed to do. And he was willing to go right up to the line in terms of dog whistles to reassure white Southern voters that he was one of them. But he was also campaigning in the black churches. And his strategy after winning the governorship of Georgia, it was a one-term office, he couldn't run again. So he began running really for president in 1971. (laughs) And uh, he had a young man named Hamilton Jordan, who was a brilliant political strategist, who wrote this memo explaining how he could seize the Democratic nomination. And that was your question about George Wallace gets to the heart of that memo. Uh, Jordan explained that the key was to defeat George Wallace in Florida. And they did it by uh, campaigning as, you know, a moderate liberal 
uh, a populist, <laughs> and they defined it very loosely. Um, and uh, it was a brilliant campaign. And after Florida, you know, you're right. Carter became, he had been the underdog, the, and he, he, he seized the nomination. By this time, of course, Ted Kennedy had not run. And there were uh, <coughs> a bunch of liberals running, but uh, as a Southern white liberal, he became suddenly very attractive, particularly in the wake of Watergate and the Vietnam War and Carter campaigning uh, on integrity, on his integrity. And he appeared to be, you know, sort of non-ideological. He was very clever and slippery and <laughs> devious, but he knew what it was, what he needed to do to win the White House. Jimmy Carter, as president, your book reminds us, did a lot of good things. He granted amnesty to Vietnam draft resistors. He sought to conserve energy. He enforced the Voting Rights Act. He named African-Americans, lots of them, to high positions in his administration. No president before him had appointed more women to significant federal jobs, from cabinet secretaries to judges. Only one woman sat on a federal court when Carter entered the White House. By the time he left, he had appointed 40 more, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So good on civil rights, good on voting, good on clean energy, good on women. Of course, there were all those other things we remember that he was not so good on. The most important this month, this year, seems to be the Mideast, the Camp David Accords, which at the time seemed like a triumph, but today seems to be the source of so many of the intractable disasters that have befallen the Palestinians over in the past few months and in the past few decades. The Camp David Accords, of course, were the peace treaty Carter negotiated between Israel and Egypt, between Begin and Sadat. Let's start at the beginning. What was Jimmy Carter's initial goal in seeking a peace treaty in the Mideast? Well, he, he came to the White House as a blank slate in terms of foreign policy. He really had very little experience. He'd spent one week in Israel tooling around in a station wagon with Jody Powell and Rosie, his wife. Um, <clears throat> but his goal was literally to bring peace to the Holy Land. That's how he thought of it. You know, he's a Southern Baptist, born again, devout Christian, and he... Uh, he just was, uh, uh, he wanted very pragmatically, he thought these two peoples had to share the land and the way to do it was, uh, he didn't say this at the time, a two-state solution. Um, so from day one, I over the opposition of Zbigniew Brzezinski, his national security advisor, over the advice, counter to the advice of Cy Vance, the secretary of state and his whole foreign policy team, he announced in, in February of 77, right after he entered the White House, that he was going to make Middle East peace a priority. And he met Sadat, he met uh, Rabin, the prime minister at the time, who then was voted out of office. And then he met Menachem Begin, the new prime minister from the Likud party, the right-wing party. And uh, he began to, spend a lot of his presidency hours and hours trying to negotiate these two, get these two men to agree to uh, some kind of outline of a peace. Eventually, uh, after 
Sadat's trip to Jerusalem, which interrupted his attempts to bring the parties, reopen the negotiations at Geneva in a uh, forum with the Soviet Union and other great powers. Uh, Sadat's private diplomacy by going off to Jerusalem sort of scuttled that option. Uh, eventually, Carter decided to bring Sadat, invite Sadat, Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, and Menachem Begin to Camp David. And over 13 days, as we know, in complete isolation, uh, com you know, uh, <clears throat> relying just completely on his own seat of the pants, personal diplomacy, shuttling between the cabins, between Sadat and, and Begin, uh, who after the first couple of days refused to see each other or Carter decided it was best that they not <laughs> talk to each other. Anyway, after 13 days, he pounded out a uh, what's known as the Camp David Accords. Now, the conventional wisdom is that he negotiated essentially a separate peace between Egypt and Israel, uh, persuading Begin to withdraw from the Sinai and uh, normalizing relations with the, with, between Egypt and Israel, and that it was a separate peace because it left out the Palestinians. I argue in my book, and I go up against the conventional wisdom of many historians on this, but I think it, the evidence is quite compelling, that, you know, Carter, part of that whole agreement was Palestinian autonomy over five years, negotiate a, a five-year period during which uh, negotiations would begin for and assure the Palestinians of autonomy. And then we know now from Carter's personal diary that he kept every day in the White House, that he fully believed that this would eventually lead to a Palestinian state of some sort, although he was not arguing at the time for a, a separate Palestinian state. That was a sort of bridge too far politically at the time. Uh, but he understood the implications of what Palestinian autonomy meant. So I argue and I show, quoting diaries and some of the Israeli participants, and that you know he got Begin to agree to a five-year freeze on the settlements in the West Bank, and that was the key issue, and that's the key issue that has festered for the last forty years and has allowed us to get to this point where a two-state solution is becoming increasingly impractical and unlikely because there's so many there are, you know so many settlers now in the West Bank. Let's emphasize at the time of the accords the settlement movement had just begun. It was kind of a new thing. Labor had accepted the de facto existence of some small settlements on the West Bank, but it wasn't government policy and you 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 report it was less than 20,000 people. Yeah. And and you report that within weeks of Camp David Begin announced that Israel would build 20 new settlements on the West Bank as the government's policy. What did Jimmy Carter think about this? Oh, he regarded it as a betrayal. And, you know, he turned to his aides and he says, Begin lied to me. Now, you know, that's an extremely controversial statement. Uh, but I believe that Begin did agree late on Saturday night, early Sunday morning, to a five-year freeze of all settlement activity in the West Bank. And Carter had it 
the language in a separate signed letter. But Bacon never signed it. He promised he was going to. He substituted a letter for a different letter with different language. It was subterfuge. He deceived the president of the United States. And uh, Carter regarded this, and he regards it today as a betrayal. And this is why he began speaking out as soon as Begin began reneging on the Palestinian component of Camp, the Camp David Accords. President Carter, then still in office, began pressuring the, the Israelis and Begin to stop the settlements. Uh, he understood that this meant they were foreclosing the avenue to a real peace, and they, they were jeopardizing the very nature of the, quote, Jewish state. And then after he left the presidency, Carter emerged as a champion of Palestinian statehood. In 1985, he published the book The Blood of Abraham. There he admitted that Camp David, quote, gave the Israelis renewed freedom to pursue their goals of fortifying and settling the occupied territories because of the way it removed Egypt from the equation that Israel had to take into account. The, the, the United States was, is, has ever since been giving Egypt more than a billion dollars a year in military and economic aid, a total of $50 billion of military aid, $30 billion in economic aid. And in exchange, Egypt enforces the blockade of Gaza, and Egypt doesn't pressure uh, Israel on, on the West Bank. And then in 2006, Jimmy Carter wrote the book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. This is a term that just in the last few months remains a flashpoint for Zionists today. What did Carter mean when he titled his 2006 book, Peace Not Apartheid? <laughs> right. Well, he knew exactly what he was doing when he used that word. It was, uh, he knew it was going to be inflammatory. He knew it was going to attract a lot of criticism. Uh, now, the title is Peace Not Apartheid. <laughs> it was very clever, but of course, everybody was just outraged that the book's title had the word apartheid in it, although the book itself doesn't, talk, doesn't accuse Israel of being an apartheid state. It's just warning the Israelis that if they continue down this road, they're jeopardizing the majority status of the Jewish population in the state. And, and he also argued that, well, he wouldn't describe Israel's treatment of uh, Arab citizens of Israel as equivalent to apartheid. In the West Bank and in Gaza, the term apartheid did become more and more accurate in describing Israeli policy towards Palestinians. So he, you know, he was very careful in his language, uh, but he was very prov provocative with the title. And uh, many of his closest aides, uh, even Stu Eisenstadt, who had served as his domestic policy counselor in the White House years, tried to persuade him to change the title. Jimmy refused. And as a result, uh, a number of trustees at the Carter Center resigned. Uh, his closest Middle East advisor resigned in a public manner. Uh, you know, and Carter took some, you know, political hits for this, but it was, he didn't care. He thought it was the right thing to do. Now, you know, part of the backstory of this is, uh, I think this is important, is that 
you know, coming back to Camp David and when he was president, after he succeeded uh, in taking Egypt off the battlefield for, you know, the next 40 years uh, for Israel, nevertheless, in 1979 and 80, as he was beginning to campaign for re-election, he was still in deep trouble with the Jewish American leadership. Rabbi Alexander Schindler, the leading spokesman for the Jewish community in those years, was a liberal Democrat who constantly was voicing his criticism of, of Carter um, as being anti-Israeli because he was pushing Begin on the settlements. And the result was that, you know, in 1976, Carter had won 72% of the Jewish American vote. In 1980, it was only 45%. He was the only Democratic candidate or sitting president not to win a majority of the Jewish vote. Just extraordinary. The Jewish American community abandoned him because of Camp David. And he lost their vote, but he also lost the evangelical vote, partly because of his position on Israel, partly because of his position on separation of church and state. It, it was, you know, it's a terrible political cost that he paid for trying to do the right thing to bring peace to the Middle East. Well, we're out of time, but I have to ask you one more question. The title of your book is The Outlier. What exactly does that mean? Well, I think, you know, I was attracted to Carter to writing about him um, because he's so complicated, because he is a liberal Southerner who has a, a very progressive position on race, but he was a small town fiscal conservative on the budget and, and uh, those kinds of issues. He, he, was, he never really understood trade unions, the labor union movement. Um, he was a liberal on regulatory issues, but he deregulated the airline industry, thus allowing Americans, middle-class Americans to fly for the first time, but weakening the, the airline trade unions. Uh, you know, he's very complicated politically. And so I think he's an outlier in the South as a man who ran for the, won the white Southern vote in 1976, and then they turned on him and they turned on him for race. And likewise, he was an outlier one, when he came to Washington and, and uh, occupied the Oval Office but refused repeatedly dinner invitations from Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. He just hated going to the Georgetown set cocktail parties. He was an outlier in terms of the Washington establishment. Uh, and if people think that he is, if people admire Jimmy Carter for his ex-presidency, uh, which they should admire his presidency as well because it's a seamless thing. It's the same guy. He's the most decent man, I argue, to have occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century. Kai Bird's new book is The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Kai, thank you for this fascinating book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs> <laughs>